A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, as you may or may not know, my older brother, in addition to being an Episcopal minister, is also a disco DJ. And when I say he's a disco DJ, I mean that he considers music uh, only listenable if it was recorded between the years of 1975 and 1985. So if you're outside those bounds, we don't want to hear about it. Um, and it's just so incredibly hip and cool, and we're all very impressed. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was talking to him about music from that period, and noticed something interesting about the groups. Uh, he, there is a trend among groups that recorded during that phase to add letters to their names to sort of stand out. So video it was spelled V-I-D-E-E-O. Right? Clever. Uh, Climax was spelled K-L-Y-M-A-X-X. Aura was spelled A-A-U-R-A. And of course, the heavy metal fans out there know that Rat was spelled R-A-T-T. And I asked him about it. I said, why were they doing this? What's interesting? And he sort of looked at me with a a twinkle in his eye. I said, well, you know, you always got to add a little something. Well... The Corinthians added a little something. It's a ridiculous lead-in to this sermon, but I hope I'll get there. We're at the very beginning of this letter, and uh, it's the first letter to the Corinthians, and the salutation has just ended, and Paul is being very sort of forceful in his communication. He's addressing a group of people who have divided along the lines of who they consider to be their leader. I didn't pick the passage. Um, But this is what's happening. And in particular, they're bragging about who they were baptized by. Some are saying, I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Apollo, or I belong to Paul. And they're sort of, they're, they're using who they were baptized by as a religious identity marker. And this, their affiliations are kind of, um, what they're, the reason why they're not getting along. 
these men were considered to be sort of super apostles. And uh, they, uh, if you were baptized by them, well, then you sort of stood in their eyes in some kind of special way. But it makes Paul very upset. And he, again, is very direct in communicating in, in sort of tearing down this as a means of uh, division. He is so direct because what he knows is happening is that they're adding something to the gospel. They're saying it's not just Jesus Christ, it's not just that I was baptized, it's that I was baptized by the right person. It's grace plus the right church. Grace plus the right family, the right politics, the right affiliations. They were looking for something to add, something more to add, something of their own. And they were just like you and me and all those groups in the 70s. We want to add something, not just in religion, but in life. We want to add something more in order to be something more. And for the sake of this sermon, let's call this the tyranny of more. More. I'm reminded of a new book that came out in November entitled America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. It's actually a lot funnier than it sounds, but it's written by a British journalist named Ruth Whipman who moved with her family from England to the West Coast and has been sort of gobsmacked by the American obsession with happiness and how differently we talk about happiness and people in England do. She says that the same questions would come up repeatedly in conversation. Uh, Am I happy? Am I as happy as my neighbor? Am I as happy as my friends? Am I as happy as everybody on social media? Could I be happier if I tried harder? There was, quote, a real anxiety about being as happy as you could be. She uh, notes that it's sort of a sunny Californian equivalent of what economists call the local ladder effect, which is simply that having a higher salary doesn't actually make you happier. What makes you happier is having a higher salary than your friends, (laughs) than those around you. I'm not making it up. Again, uh, in her view, in America, to be happy is to be happier than one's peers. It's a matter of comparison. And this compulsion to maximize happiness, it turns out, is not, um, is not yielding maximal happiness. It's creating the opposite. She cites a survey where the higher the respondents rated happiness as a distinct personal ambition, the less happy they were in their lives generally, and the more likely they were to experience symptoms of dissatisfaction, even depression. I mean, if you're asking yourself constantly, am I happy? Am I happy now? Am I happy now? How about now? You become very self-conscious. You're constantly taking your own temperature, and that is uh, misery, miserable making. She then goes on to cite an international comparison study of moment-to-moment happiness of people living in different nations and found that America ranked 25th globally, two places behind Rwanda, which is recovering from major genocide. So that's not good news for you and me living here in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. And we see that um, this tyranny of more is um, doing the same thing to the Corinthians that it does to us. Uh, You know, they're not adding something to their uh, faith that's bad. 
They're talking about who baptized them. Who has the, the, been the deliverer of the hope that has changed their lives, that has given them a new lease, that has, that has sort of given rebirth, renewal, all of the, this incredible gift. And yet, the impulse to add something more creates something less. Less unity, less cohesion, less love. So even something good but can become a vehicle of division to the extent that it becomes a vehicle of more. It will become a new ladder in your life. And all of us who are climbing ladders know that the, long, the, the longer, the, uh, it, the ladders only get longer the higher you climb. The, the tyranny of more is one of the reasons it's a tyranny is because it feeds on itself. It does this in relationships, by the way, if you're trying to please someone, if you feel like their, your, their, their affection for you is premised on you being able to deliver just a little bit more, uh, you find that you never actually get to that place where it's enough. But um, I think we could also draw some historical parallels. There's reading about labor-saving devices, the sort of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. There was um, a, a wave of labor-saving devices that transformed the lives of housewives and domestic servants across Europe and North America. Technology that meant that you uh, no longer needed to wash clothes, that you had to be bent over a mangle all day. I don't know what a mangle is. Sounds not like fun, and it sounds tedious and long. So, um, but you know, there are vacuum cleaners now. You could render a carpet spotless in minutes. There were irons for your clothes. There were washing machines. Yet the historian Ruth Cowan demonstrated in her book *More Work for Mother* that the result for much of the 20th century was not an increase in leisure time among those charged with doing the housework. Instead, as the efficiency of housework increased. So did the standards of cleanliness and domestic order society came to expect. In other words, now that the living room carpet could be kept perfectly clean, it had to be. Now that clothes never needed to be grubby, grubbiness was all the more taboo. Translate that into 2017. Now that you can get an email at 11.30 at night, you should respond to it then too. Right? You know, why haven't you responded? I said, well, yeah, I got the email at 1 a.m. It's only 8 a.m. Yeah, but you should have responded. Well, you know, it's, it's only 8 o'clock in the morning. If you haven't experienced this yet, you will. Um, <laughs> but this is this, the, the tyranny of more is that more becomes more, becomes more, becomes more. And it's an illusion to think that you're ever going to satisfy it. Now, uh, what Paul is aghast because what happens is when you take religious practice and you make it into a, an addition, a, a matter of more, you turn God into something he's not. Martin Luther put it this way. He said that men fast, pray, watch, suffer. They intend to appease God and deserve God's grace by their exertions. But there is no glory in it for God, because by their exertions, these workers pronounce God to be an unmerciful slave driver, an unfaithful and angry judge. They make a liar out of him. In other words, with our additions, with our more, uh, it, can, uh, it constitutes, intentionally or not, a self-centered refusal to believe that God's approval of us in Christ is full and final. So how then does Paul respond? Because he, uh, again, he's coming right at them with both barrels. The first thing he does is something that no minister has ever said, ever. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. 
Now, if you don't, if you're not aware of church inner workings, um, the, you know, before I became uh, went into ministry, I had a friend from college say, like, well, do you get a bonus for how many conversions you get, or how many baptisms? I said, no, but we should, right? And uh, this is, no one ever fudges the numbers on baptisms. You want to inflate those as much as humanly possible because it makes your church look good, okay? This is how you get funding and stuff like that. So, um, but he's saying, I didn't, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. He's not taking credit for it. In fact, I want nothing to do with this whole scheme you've devised to divide yourselves. I am not taking any credit. But secondly, he says that Christ is not divided. He said, can Christ be divided? It's a rhetorical question. No, Christ cannot be divided. He cannot be made less by your insistence on contributing more. It's a a profound statement. But thirdly, and another no-no for people in liturgical church situations, Paul subordinates baptism to the preaching of the gospel. He says, I didn't come to baptize, I came to preach the gospel. And meaning, the gospel itself, God's grace, God's full and final acceptance of you in Christ, that is uh, more important than its outward sign. In other words, what's important is not who you are affiliated with, but who has affiliated himself with you. That's why people come to church, and that's what's important here. And finally, though, he ends, and actually he goes on in the letter, but this passage ends with this stunning declaration that the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What did he mean? Well, quite simply, he meant that the things that you think make you exceptional that you have added to distinguish yourself, to make yourself righteous, even the good things, well, those are actually spiritual impediments insofar as they convince you that you don't need God. This is upside down thinking and talking. Moreover, those things that make you less than others, those things that you're ashamed of, those things that you hide, your weaknesses, your infirmities, your lack, your incompleteness, your subtractions, well, those, those places are where you actually appreciate the largeness of God's extravagant love for the sinner. I'll give you a closing illustration of a sort of an echo of what this looks like. Uh, a few weeks ago in the New York Times Magazine, there was a, a, a profile of a guy named B.J. Miller, who's a palliative care physician in San Francisco, which means he works with people who are dying. He works with, in hospice care primarily. He's become well-known for having a really unconventional but extremely um, effective and dignifying approach to death. And uh, B.J. was the age of some of you here. Uh, he, he was in college. He was at Princeton. And he, was, he and his friends were climbing on an abandoned railway car one night, and it was still uh, conducting electricity. And he got uh, zapped, and he, um, both of his legs got burned off, and so did one of his arms. And so he's a triple amputee, this man. He's a triple amputee. And he talks about the period immediately after his accident. He says, for a long time after the accident, no visitors were allowed in his hospital room because, you know, the burn unit is a sterile environment. No people from the outside can go in. 
But on the morning that his arm was to be amputated, a dozen friends and family members packed into a 10-foot-long corridor between the burn unit and the elevator just to catch a glimpse of him as he rolled to surgery. He says, they all dared to show up. They all dared to look at me in my devastated state. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't see it. Now, this moment for him is the beginning of the rest of his life. It is a case in which the experience of grace, of being loved at your darkest, ugliest, most desperate, most ashamed, births a passion for caring for others at, in the midst of their own perishing. He goes on to say, parts of me died early on, and that's something one way or another we actually all can say. I got to redesign my life around this fact, and I'll tell you, it has been a liberation. They then quote some other physicians from Columbia who said, you know, the thing about BJ is um, when he comes and talks to you, you know from seeing him standing in front of you that he's suffered. You know that he's been on the brink of the abyss that he's talking about, and that gives him an authority that others may not have. So BJ is effective uh, because of his wounds. His wounds represent not only the means of his own liberation in life, but the channel through which he reaches other people, his patients. And if it sounds Christ-like, well, that's because a friend midway through the article says, it's impossible to describe what it feels like to be with BJ. People feel accepted. I think they feel loved. He comes to them in his subtracted, sort of mangled form. And he imposes no more. On them. He is not asking for more. His very presence allows them to be less. No one would ever ask for what happened to him, but what looks like the worst thing in his life has turned out to be the best thing. This is a distant echo of the Lord we have come here to worship tonight, of this Jesus Christ who became less even though he was more. First becoming a baby and then submitting himself to humiliation and death, indeed the foolishness of the cross. And yet that cross precisely is where the power of God is found. And it's not just found for BJ, it's found there for you as well. Where are you clamoring for more in life? Where is more being demanded of you? And who are you asking for more from? Where are you, though, impaired? Where are you subtracted? Where are the infirmities that you are hiding? Well, take heart, because that may be the very place that God is present in your life. So to be clear, this gospel that Paul came to proclaim to the Corinthians. It is not about adding anything, but being added to something. It does not have anything to do with lining up your affiliations in an admirable or correct way. It has to do with the God who is undividedly loyal to you despite your disloyalty to him, who looks at you as you are, as a human as a sinner, and instead of saying more, he says, mine. 
Amen.